The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au We'll take your Bibles again to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 this morning. Chapter 2. I was uh, was just rejoicing in my heart as I sat at the table here. And Poovan was leading us and talking about redeeming love. I almost wish I could run out and reprint the sermon notes and title the message, Redeeming Love. Because they dovetail together so well what we're going to talk about this morning. The fact that God, in immense grace, has saved us who are wretches and sinners. We were just like Gomer, gone our own way. Can, can you think of anything so remarkable as a woman who goes out and sells herself into harlotry and her husband in redeeming love goes out and gets her and brings her home, and as he closed up, he separates her for himself. That is what our God has done for us. What an amazing God we have this morning. Such love. I was thinking of the verse in First John. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons and the daughters of God. That's love. Let's read from verse number 1 of chapter 2 down to verse number 10. And he says, And you were, being, were dead sorry, in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Loving Father, this morning as we come before your word, we cry out to you, O God, as we were singing, that with open hearts we would hear what your spirit would say to each of us. For that one or two people in this room, O God, that have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and known what it is to be truly saved, to be rescued with redeeming love. Father, we ask this morning that the Spirit of God would trouble them, 
Convict them of their sin and their need. And draw them to the Savior. Draw them to God, who is rich in mercy and great in love. Father, we ask you these things. We ask you for your help, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember last week, I was talking about the power of God at work toward us. And how that knowledge, that knowing the power of God involves the working of our minds to think, to remember. And what Paul does here is he, as he crosses from verse 23 and into the first verse of chapter 2 is he carries his thought along, but he sort of shifts direction slightly to give us an illustration, an example of how we can think and how we can know. And he explains to us where we came from and he reminds the Ephesians, if you notice the verse or the verb tense there is were dead or being dead is actually more accurate, but it's the idea of past tense. This is what you were before God began to act. I want you to think about where you have come from and realize the greatness of God's grace toward us. Our situation was that we were as bad off as we could be. We were not as bad as we could be. We can always be worse. We can always sin more. But we were as bad off as we could be. We were in the worst possible situation. We were under the wrath of God. We were living in sins and trespasses. We were, as we were singing on that song just a few minutes ago, we were wretches who were saved by grace. I don't know if I've told you the story, but a friend of mine who was a minister of the gospel for many years was in a service and they were singing with great gusto, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the song finished and he leaned over to the lady standing beside him and, and she was all decked out in her Sunday finery and she said, he said to her, excuse me ma'am, uh, what sort of wretch were you? And she, oh, oh. Very offended, and she stomped away with quite indignant that he would ask her such a question. <laughs> what sort of wretch were you? You just sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we need to realize and remember and think back, and it's, it's, a, it's fuel for our faith, it's fuel for our worship to realize what God has saved us from. It is God's amazing, gentle grace to us that He does not show us just how bad we really are. It's God's grace that He, in a sense, shields even our own view of realizing just the depth of the depravity of our hearts before God saved us. Well, here in this text, having just unleashed a beautiful and lengthy exposition of God's work in saving us, how He chose us before the foundation of the world, how the Son redeemed us, and how the Spirit sealed us until the day of redemption, He's prayed for them. He's prayed that they might know the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance, and to know the power of God at work towards them, that established Christ as head, having raised Him, and elevated him to his right hand. He continues to show that power at work as an expression of God's grace to save us from our desperate condition of sin. I want you to notice, just as we get started, the repetition of grace in the whole passage from 5, 7, and 8. He says in verse 5, By grace we have been saved. 
He says in verse 7 that he might show us the riches of his grace. And in verse 8, he repeats it again. By grace you have been saved through faith. The passage is dealing with the grace of God toward us. Now in the whole chapter, there is a main idea here. And what is, is this? By comparing what we were in our state and our practice with what we are because of God's grace in verses 1 through 9, Paul declares that we were made, made alive for good works and we are brought near by Christ so that we should not live as Gentiles and unbelievers and foreigners and exiles and excluded from the people of God, but we are to live as citizens, fellow citizens and fellow heirs with the saints and the family of God. I want you to notice also that in verse 1 all the way down, I think it's to the end of verse 9, is one sentence in the original language. And the main subject and the main verb, which everything else falls underneath and subordinate to, is in verse number 4, but God, if you jump down in the end of verse 5, it says, made us alive. That's the main point. That's everything he's trying to say in these, in these 10 verses is those things. But God made us alive. And together with that, he raised us up together and seated us together with Christ. Everything else kind of falls subordinate to those three great truths. Notice they parallel if you like mirror the truths he's just presented in verse 20 of chapter 1. He brought about God's power in Christ when he raised him from the dead, when he seated him at his right hand, and he gave him his head over all things. They go together. They fit together. God's work in Christ, through Christ, and God's work in us go together. I want us to see that even though we lived in sin, we lived in conformity to the world and to the devil, even though... We were destined, heading hell-bent, if you like, for God's wrath. God intervened. We were destined for God's wrath against us. And God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace intervened. Not only when we could not help ourselves, but when we had not the slightest interest or even a desire to be saved. God intervened. The lowest possible moment, at the 11th hour, if you like, when we could not do anything to help ourselves, God intervened. So I want to see, first of all, our state apart from God's saving grace. Notice the text says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, a better translation is we being dead. Because it's, it's subordinate. It's not the main point. He's saying being dead. So he's setting up what he's going to announce finally, which is that God made us alive. So our state is that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, what does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? The word is necros. It means to be characterized by a lack of spiritual life or vigor. It's to be completely indifferent toward the things of God. Every once in a while I have a young person or even an older person come and, and confess their great struggle with sin, not knowing for sure if they're truly saved. I said, listen, you're struggling, you're wrestling with sin. And they said, yes. I said, you ever notice you put two bodies on the ground, a live one and a dead one? Take a great big weight, 100 pounds, 100 kilos, and rest that weight on the chest, one on the dead man and one on the live man. Which one will try and push it off? She's the live one. Well, yeah, of course. The dead one hasn't got a clue it's there. 
And the reality is that in dead in our sins and trespasses, we're absolutely indifferent. We care nothing for God. We care nothing for the things of God, the things and truths of Scripture. We don't do anything to try and push off our sin. We just leave it and let it sit there. We're dead. What is a state of spiritual death? In Ephesians 4, verse 18, the Bible says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. We could say that spiritual death is alienation from God. We are separated from God. I used to uh, do kids' camps years ago. I loved teaching with uh, young boys and girls. And I used to try and tell them stories to illustrate truths. I said, what, is spirit, what does death mean, guys? And they said, well, I don't know. You, you die. You, you stop breathing. Yeah, that's true. But what it means, actually, is separation. When God said to the man, the woman, in the garden, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, what he mean was, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely be separated from God. And you know what happened in the story? They eat the fruit. Their eyes are open. They see that they're naked. They try and cover themselves up. They try and hide away from God. And God comes. And in immense grace, from a distance, He says, Where are you? I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. Who told you? And He revealed to them the state of the situation between them. But he, re- he also was showing in that picture being at a distance and speaking to them across a distance that they now had been separated from God. And the end of that scene, the garden, what happens? God puts a flaming sword at the entrance of the garden. And the Bible says He drove them out of the garden. He pushed them away. All through the Old Testament, the idea of separation comes up again and again and again. There has to be a separation because man is now dead in sin and God is still, as always, absolutely holy and just and righteous. Spiritual death is alienation from God. In John 3.36, the Bible says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey... The Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Spiritual death is to be in a state of disobedience that comes from unbelief. We are all in our sins. We were disobedient and unbelieving of what God had called us to do. In Romans, sorry, Isaiah 9 verse 2, the Bible says this, The people who walk in darkness... The idea of spiritual death is to be in a state of spiritual ignorance or darkness. What does John say in the gospel? He's the light that shines into the darkness. And a literal translation is, and the darkness could not overpower him. He was the light shining. and We were in darkness, spiritually dead, cut off from God. Romans 3. Take your Bibles and just flip back a couple pages to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. It says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All, let's keep reading. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is quoting Psalm 14. And he is describing what it means to be dead in sin. And the verse number 11 makes it absolutely clear that there is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We are absolutely unable to respond in faith or obedience to God. We're cut off. We were. I want to keep reminding myself all the way through this message. That's what we were. Thinking back to our situation before Christ intervened. That's what we were. Gomer at home months after the situation and and Hosea has gone down and he's brought her back. She can think back. I remember the days I was indifferent to my husband's love. But he reached out and in redeeming love, he brought me home. Spiritual death is an inability to respond. Romans 8 verse 6, spiritual death is to have a mind that is set or fastened on the flesh rather than on God. In Romans 6, 17, 18, spiritual death is to be in a state of slavery to sin. She was in slavery to harlotry. Could not set herself free. She had to have someone purchase her to set her free. God has purchased us with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we came to faith in Christ, before God did a work in us to awaken us, we were in slavery to sin. That's what we were. That was us. We were spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. We were disobedient to God. We were in darkness and ignorance to the things of God. We were totally dedicated to self and our own pleasures. We were in slavery to sin, hopeless and uninterested. And then you hit verse number 4, and what does he say? But God. Two of the greatest words in all of Scripture, three words. Three letters each, six letters in total. B-U-T-G-O-D. That spells grace. Because there's nothing we could do to set ourselves free. Absolutely hopeless was our situation. But God, but God intervened. Without God's intervention to our lives with grace, we would still be in the state of dead in sin. Notice, secondly, our lives apart from God's saving grace. It wasn't just a state that we were in. We were in an act of living in that state. We were living lives apart from God's grace. Five things I want to characterize our lives apart from saving grace. We were living in sins and trespasses. We weren't just dead in them. We were living in them. We were living in conformity to the world. Thirdly, we were living in conformity to the devil and Satan. Fourthly, we're living indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And fifthly, we were living destined for the wrath of God. Now, I haven't put number four on your outline because we're going to include it with another one, okay? That's why you're looking sort of confused about where did number four go. It's included with another one. We were, first of all, living in trespasses and sins. Notice the text. He says, in which you formerly walked. So you weren't just dead in a state. You are actively living out that deadness. You are actively living in sins. Now, what is sin, you say? Sin is a willful lawlessness against God. The Bible says in 1 John 3, verse 4, 
Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It's a willful disobedience against the commands of God. We know what God says. The the Bible reveals it to us. Even in our conscience testifies as to what is right and wrong, and we willfully go against it. And we know what we're doing when we do it. I was lo- I love little kids. We had um, the Russins had their with their granddaughter was over last night. Uh, Devin Tiff's little girl, and and she occasionally gets into trouble, and she's so cute. Um, she had taken crayon, and she had gone down the whole length of their dining room wall, and she had done some great artwork with this crayon all over the dining room wall, right? And and uh, Tiff comes to the door when Dev gets home. He's a carpenter like me, and. He, she says, do you love your daughter? He opens the door. He says, yes. Why? She said, well, come with me. So they show her the wall. And, and he's standing there looking at this wall. It's like maybe uh, 10 feet long, 11 feet long. It's just, and she's just colored all over it with crayon. And he said, Molly, come here. And, and she walked over, and she sort of stood about 8 feet away. He said, no, Molly, come here. And she got a little closer and a little closer. And then she looked up at him, and the first she did, you know what she did? She sat down. You know why? Because she figured if her rear end was covered, maybe Dev couldn't give the appropriate thing. She knew. He had to say, hey, Molly, it is wrong, it is illegal, it is against the rules of this house to color on a crayon with wall. She knew that. And she willfully disobeyed her parents. She was having such a good time coloring on that wall. You say, kids are not sinners, they grow up a little bit? No, they're born in sin, they come out sinning, and they're very quick at it. Someone once said, you take a little child with all of its sinful bent and all of its uh, utterly selfish drive and you make it an adult immediately, it will destroy everything in its path to get exactly what it wants. God leaves them little babies unable to walk or talk or crawl for a while so that we can train them and shape them and guide them. We know we're sinners. We're willful in our sin. Sin is a willful disobedience against God's commands. But he also says you're dead in trespasses and sin. So what does trespasses mean? Where sin is a willful disobedience, trespasses is more like a careless disobedience. We just don't care about what God says. We're indifferent to it, so we go ahead and we sin anyway. I don't give a rip. What was the famous saying of the, the 90s? Whatever. You know, you hear T that say, oh, Whatever. There's this idea of absolute carelessness and and indifference to God. It's sin and it's trespass and we lived actively in it. We were walking. The idea of repetitive motion. We just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And that's what we were. Before God intervened, that's what we were. Sin is the cause of our death. Adam's sin, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it left the world dead to God. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam started, but you can't blame Adam. You say, oh, we blame Eve because she took the fruit and after all it was her. You know, oh, no, 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 no. I heard this great story. I love stories. Uh, there's this slave down in uh, America in the 1830s, 1840s. And one day he's out in the field and he's working away. And his master came riding by on the horse and he heard the slave. And the slave is going, that darn old Eve. And she, he's 
hacking up the hoe into the ground, you know, and she's rumbling about Eve. And the master stopped the horse. He said, Samuel, what's the problem? He said, that Eve, I just, oh, I just hates that Eve. Why? Well, because if she hadn't eaten that fruit, we wouldn't be here. I'd be over there in the shade drinking lemonade. It'd be a great day. And the master said, you know what, Samuel, you got a good point. Why don't you put down that hoe, go over there, you go into the house and you go into my room and you get the clothes out of my closet and you dress yourself like me. And Samuel's looking at him like, what? And then put the clothes on, then you can, you, you can go all through the house, you can and, and sit in the library and read the books, you can sit by the fire, you can sit out in the shade, I'll have someone else bring, you won't even have to make the lemonade, we'll make it all for you. It's just one thing. There is a box, a little wooden, like a cigar box on my desk. You can do anything you want in this house, on this property, as long as you want, except for one thing, you can't touch that box on my desk. A day goes by and Samuel's having the time of his life. He is wearing the master's clothes. He is riding the master's horse. He is shooting the master's gun. Not at the master, mind you. He's just having a good time. He's not working. All his friends are envious of Samuel. He sits under the shade in the tree and he drinks some lemonade. He goes into the library. And after about two days, you know what he can think about? One thing. The box. And he goes in there and he walks around the desk and he's looking at it. He's trying to get the best angle. So he's not actually touching it. And finally, the master goes out, and the house is all empty, and Samuel thinks, oh, nobody will know. And he reaches over, and he just, he just takes the box, he just lifts it just a little bit. And there's just a little scrap of paper inside. What? So he opens a box, pulls it out. You wicked slave, get back to work. That's what it said. <laughs> he knew in that moment what it meant to be Eve. He understood it. Listen, sin caused our death, but all of us are under that death plague because we have all sinned. We could love to put the blame on Adam and the blame on Eve, but you know what? When we come face to face with God's Word, <clears throat> we look into it, we see that we are just like Him. We sin just like He did, and we carry on. He did it once and feared and try to hide him from himself. We carry on in blazing disregard. We were living in sins and trespasses. Sin is also the result of death. Being dead in sin, we commit sin. Genesis 4 describes Cain and all that wicked line and how they went right off into wickedness in one generation. That's what we were, folks. It's great to enjoy the Lord. It's great to come in and celebrate and rejoice in what God has done for us. But let us never forget, like Paul is reminding us here, that once we were dead in trespasses and sins, once we walked according to the desires of our heart, the desires and the lusts of the flesh. Secondly, I want you to notice we were living in conformity to this world. Notice what he says in the text. According to the course of this world, we walked, we lived according to the course of the world. The idea of according to means in conformity with. So just as the world walks and lives and functions, so we used to live and function just like the world. We were a part of that. You say, what does the world mean? Does it mean the universe, the planet, what? No, it's the idea of a world system. So in 1 John 2 verse 16, the Bible says this, for all that is in the world, comma, the lust of the flesh 
The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you want to summarize what he means when he says we walked in conformity to the world, what he's saying is this, we walked in conformity with selfishness. Homer and, and Hosea. Gomer and Hosea, I think. The, the, the story that Proven shared. Selfishness. She went out and sold herself for money. She was living for self. All of us were living driven by the idea of achieving what we could for ourselves. That's why he talks about the lust of the flesh. Sorry, in verse number 3. The lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He's saying that everything about our bodies, everything about our minds, our hearts, was absolutely driven to satisfy ourselves. Little baby again, right? They're absolutely selfish. Change me and change me now. If you don't, I'll scream my head off. Feed me and feed me now. If you don't, I'll creep, scream my head off. I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to scream my head off. I'm having fun with this. I'm going to scream my head off anyways. And they just keep doing it. Why? Because they're driven by selfishness. But so are we. So were we. We were just the same. Absolutely driven by the desire to satisfy ourselves at any and all costs. What did Eve do? When she saw the fruit... That it was good to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. She took for herself and she ate. And then she gave to her husband who was with her that he might share in her sin. It was desirable to her eyes. It was desirable to her flesh. It was desirable to her mind to make her like God. Everything about that situation was let me be like God. Selfish. That's what we were. There's an application that I want to bring out later. Notice we were living in conformity with this world. If you take your Bibles and go to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter, the first Psalm in the, the Psalter. We have this idea floating around as unbiblical. The idea that there is sacred and then there's secular and then there's wicked. Three ideas, three, three basic worldviews. It's not true. The Bible never has that idea. The Bible has two ideas, two main worldviews, two main uh, modes or ways of living. God's way and the wicked way. The way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. They're both there. That's all there is. There is no middle neutral ground. You can't say, well, you know, that's sacred and that's ungodly, but this is just kind of secular. No, the Bible never says that. In fact, what it makes it clear to us is everything that we do in our lives is either going to be, de- be done in the way of godliness or it will be done in the way of wickedness, one or the other. There's no middle ground. And the Psalter, the first psalm here, makes that clear. Listen as we read. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two ways. 
the ungodly wicked way of the world or the godly way of God and righteousness. The ungodly way is to walk in the counsel of the wicked, not God's counsel. The ungodly way is to stand the path of the sinner who acts constantly against God. The ungodly way is to sit in the seat of scoffers and mockers of God and his ways. Who do you think they're mocking? They're mocking God. But God's righteousness is the complete opposite of that. It's delighting in the law of the Lord. It's meditating in the law of the Lord. It's, as Joshua 1 brings out, it's obeying the law of the Lord. One of the first verses I ever memorized. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt have good success, and thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Old King James, I know, doesn't matter. It's a great verse. And what he's saying is you're meditating so that you may obey God, do everything that God calls you to do. If we are living in conformity to this world, we are either living, we're living in wickedness or living in conformity to God's way. We're living in the way of righteousness. One or the other. But Paul is saying back in Ephesians chapter 2 that when we walked according to the course of this world, we walked in the way of the world. We walked in the way of wickedness which was against God. So what I've said so far, if you were God, would you save you? Would you save someone else like that? Not me. I look at him and go, you kidding? I wouldn't do that. But then you look down at verse number 4 and you read the words, But God, even though, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, but God reached out. And God in amazing grace, God rich in mercy, God with a love so amazing, it's beyond human comprehension, He made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, think back. Don't get buried there, but think back to what you were without Christ, the way you lived apart from Christ, and rejoice. Worship the living God. Love God with all your heart, your mole, your mind, your strength, your soul, because look what He has done. There's a, an old phrase. Uh, I remember sitting in a worship service, and a man got up and he shared, and he said, I want to ask you two questions, or ask a question to answer it. What think ye of Christ was his question. What do you think about Jesus? And the answer was, yea, he hath done all things well. Everything he has done well, even when we were dead and sins and trespasses, he intervened in rich mercy and great love, and he saved us, he rescued us. Thirdly, we were, we were walking in conformity to the way of the devil and Satan. Notice what he says in verse number 2 again. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about the devil. We lived in conformity with the devil. And there are three things that characterize the way the devil lives. Number one, there is pride. Number two, there is rebellion. And number three, what was it? Never mind. Two things. Pride and rebellion that characterize the way the devil lives. If you go back to the devil works. If you go to Isaiah 14, you see the way of pride. Isaiah 14 is this, this little section in the book of Isaiah where he uses the story of the king of Babylon 
and what the king of Babylon does and use it as an allegorical illustration to describe the fall of Satan. And that in that passage, you can read these words. There's a whole bunch of eyes in there. And this king this, who's describing Satan says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He says, I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I will, I will, I will. It's all about him. It's all about him exercising his prideful will in opposition against God, in rebellion to God. What will we like? I will do whatever I want. I will go where I want. I will say what I want. I will think what I want. I will behave any way I like. Thank you very much. Nobody can tell me what to do. Like little kids, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) We used to say as kids, you know what we're doing? We're doing exactly what he did. We're saying, I will do what I want. I will have nobody to rule over me. I will not submit myself to any authority or government. One of the marks of this society, I was watching this show, um, is what these guys, and and they work in the uh, American prison system. And they had to bring these, uh, they'd arrest guys on the streets for drugs or whatever, and bring them in and process them through the system. They have to put them in cuffs and, and do their rights and take all their belongings away and put them in a cell and all that stuff. And the rebelliousness of these young people and even older people who simply would not submit to the authority that was placed over them. And it was placed there by God. And when we live and act that way, we are living in conformity to the devil and his way, which is rebellion and pride against God. That's what we were. We were living in non-stop Pride and rebellion against God. The devil displays his pride that way. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 talks about how the devil is characterized as prideful. In Proverbs 8.13, pride is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. In the same verse, the Bible says that God hates pride and arrogance and the evil way. In Proverbs 21 verse 4, the pride is described simply as sin. It's a sin against God. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 3, pride and arrogance are forbidden by God. How do we live? What were we like before we were saved? We were living like that. You take a long look at your life, look back. I think back to some of the things I did and said as an unbeliever. I was exactly like, I wouldn't have anybody tell me what to do. Stubborn and rebellious and prideful. Conformity to the way of the devil is pride. It's also rebellion against God. Satan desired to raise himself above God. I will be like the Most High. I will ascend above Him. I will rule over the Most High. Sin, brothers and sisters, is rebellion against God. Just as a side note, why is it so critical as parents that we raise our kids in discipline? And the fear of the Lord. Because if that is not, not disciplined out of them, if they are not taught to respect authority, respect their parents, respect even elders and leaders in a church, they are acting in conformity to the way of the devil. 
Because he is exactly the same. And those authority structures God has put there for their good and his glory. If children are allowed to live like that and walk like that, we are teaching them that it is okay to live in conformity to the devil. It's not. But praise God, he saved us. He reached in down and he intervened in that way. Moving on. That was us. We lived in conformity to this world. We were living in a way of the wicked. We were utterly concerned only about ourselves. We were dead in sins and trespasses. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, we deserved only his righteous anger and only his indignation because we were completely self-centered and utterly failing to glorify him. But God in mercy did not give us what we deserved. That's what mercy means. He held back what we deserved in mercy. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, God's love is patient. And God was patient with us, and he is patient still. God's love is kind. God was, and he is kind toward us in the way he deals with us. God's love is sacrificial. Greatest verse, not greatest, great verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life he gave everything that we might be redeemed we might be made alive it was love not merely stated like a fancy card or flowers some of that it was love demonstrated and expressed in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross it was love like Hosea who went down to the marketplace where his wife was selling her body and bought her back in redeeming love and grace. I cannot imagine that scene. The two of them standing there face to face. He's paid the price to take her home. I don't know if her eyes just glued to the ground in shame. But love took her and brought her home and cleaned her up and washed her off. And he kept her for himself. That's love. That's what God did for us. He made us alive. Listen, there's one clear evidence that we've been made alive. We go from being self-centered to self-denying. What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. What the world system is marked by? Absolute selfishness. And Jesus said, you're going to be my follower. You're going to be the exact opposite of that. You will deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So we were living dead in sins and trespasses. Secondly, we were living in conformity to the world, the way of nakedness. And finally, we were living in conformity to the devil. It's deception and it's lying, it's pride, it's, it's selfishness, all those things. And what the end of it is this, is we were living destined for the wrath of God. Look what he says in verse number 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He uses two phrases there which are really important. The first one is this, we were sons of disobedience, and secondly, we were children of wrath. Well, what do those mean? 
their Hebraisms, meaning their, their phrases taken from the Hebrew language and brought into the New Testament as descriptive ways to describe something really important. To be a son of disobedience means this, is to be the sons of disobedience and unbelief. They kind of go together. So the, the truth is this, those who disobey do not believe, those who do not believe will disobey but those who obey believe, and those who believe obey. So belief and obedience are tied together. And he says, listen, we were sons of disobedience. We were trapped. We were slavery to disobedience and unbelief. We would not believe what God told us, and we would not obey. But not only that, we have to realize this, that that unbelief is more than just an absence of trust, it is a defiant attitude. I'm going to read that story about Thomas. I'm going to change the emphasis of the words just to get across the point. Remember the scene? The disciples in the upper room, Jesus has come back. They've all seen Jesus. They're like, wow, he's alive, he's real. And Thomas comes in. Thomas, you missed it, man, the Lord was here. Unless I put my finger in the nail print in his hands and my hand in his sides, this is what he says, I will not believe. That's not an absence of trust. That's a defiant rejection of God. I will not believe. And you know what? We were just like that. And that defiance, God is going to one day judge with great severity. There is only one sin, brothers and sisters, that keeps us out of heaven. One sin and one sin alone for which we cannot be forgiven. And it's this, the sin of unbelief. Because in the end of the day, unbelief is willful defiance of God. I will not believe. What's the Bible say in the book of Acts? I think it's chapter 13. God now commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. It's a command. The gospel call to trust God and repent of sin is not a brightly packaged gift for you to do whatever you want with. I hear people preach the gospel of that, and my whole body just kind of, ooh, shudders. You've massively distorted what the truth of the gospel is. It isn't something that you can walk along and go, you know, I think I'll take Christianity instead of Buddhism. Or, you know, I was thinking about the Muslim faith, but I think I'll go with Christianity after all. Like you're just taking a package off a shelf for yourself. Like you're doing God a favor by believing. That is not the gospel at all. The gospel is God commands us to believe and repent of sin. And disobedience to that command is only going to be judged in one way, and that's an eternity cut off, separated from God. We were like that. I can still remember, clear as day, Dangong movie theater, sitting there watching the Jesus movie. My little friend Chester beside me, I think I was 10 or 11. And they're all watching this great story of the Lord portrayed on the screen. And my little friend Chester is crying his eyes out. And the tears are run down his face. I heard the message. I heard the truth of the gospel. My dad had been telling me this as a little kid, using his finger to describe the nails in the hands of Jesus. I knew all that stuff. And I, just, I sat there and said, I'm not going to believe it. I won't have it. I pushed it away. Went over to Canada and went to one Christian church and camp until finally God just got a hold of me and said no and I remember that moment sitting on a bed at Anvil Island Bible Camp in Cabin Berea 
with my counselor sitting across from me and little kids all around me. I said, yes, I want it. God awakened my heart that I might believe. But I remember also very clearly saying, I get what he's saying and I won't have it. I pushed it away. Unbelief is not merely the absence of trust. It is a willful defiance that says no to God. That brings us to a second of our two phrases. We were by nature children of wrath. It means that if we were left to our own natural course of things, we would fall under the wrath of God. God is angry at sinners for their sin. Do not ever let the idea that God's immense love pushes aside or invalidates His anger and His wrath. God is angry at sinners. For they're not angry at sin, he's angry at sinners, the people doing the sin. And God will send sinners who refuse to repent and believe, he will send them to hell. Listen, we were spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. We lived in past tense, in willful lawlessness against God. We lived in careless lawlessness against God. We were living in self-centered conformity to this world. We were living in prideful conformity to, to the devil. We were living in rebellious conformity to the devil. We were living in lying Deceiving conformity. We were indulging the lusts of the flesh. We were sons of disobedience and children of wrath, destined to face the almighty, unmitigated wrath of God. But God. I can't emphasize it enough. But God who is merciful. God who is rich in mercy. Not stingy. God's mercy wasn't meted out. Well, you know, Wes needs just a little bit, so I'll give him a little bit. Oh, you know, Cameron needs a little bit, I'll give him just a little bit. No. The idea of immense, rich, he poured it out on top of us. He dumped his mercy over us and covered us with it. God who is love, exercising great love toward us, even when we were still sinners, he made us alive together with Christ. Listen. The reality that you have one thought for God, one desire for God. Every time you go down to open your word of God and you begin to read and the spirit of God begins to lay and impress things from his word on your heart. It's a reality. It's a proof that the spirit of God is at work opening your eyes to see that there's a desire for those things. It's only because God is at work in your life. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, The Lord Jesus Christ suffered to pay the penalty of death for our sins and rose again that we might be declared righteous. God in wonderful grace, matchless grace, amazing grace. God in that made us alive together with Christ. The idea of together comes up in all three of those verbs. Made us alive together, raised us together, seated us together. It's all fastened with Christ. What an amazing power of God at work toward us. And when we think, he says, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, even when at the worst possible moment of our sin, he still acted in love and grace toward us. There's something that compels me to ask a question this morning. And it's not to the unbeliever, it's actually to the believer. Having been made alive with Christ, are we still living 
in sins and trespasses. Paul talks about in Romans 6, shall we sin that grace may abound? And he uses the strongest negative in Greek, mekonoito, may it never be. It's impossible. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you're sitting here this morning. We're going through what it was that you once were. But let me ask you the question, are you still living under that power of sin? Paul says in Galatians 5, I think it is, For freedom's sake, Christ has set you free. Don't go under a yoke of slavery again. How many of us this morning are still walking in the lusts of the flesh? Still living to try and everything we can do to satisfy the desires of the flesh and the mind. How many of us this morning are still living in selfishness? You know why the Lord kept laying that on me all through the week? Because it was convicting to me. Sitting there looking at the Word of God like a mirror saying, Lord, is that me? Am I still driven by those desires? God has set me free. It's like a man who has been a slave. He's been set free. I think I told you the story about the, the slaves in America and when they got the news of the Emancipation Proclamation. Some of them just couldn't comprehend what it mean, meant that they were now free. They could go and walk out of that area. They could walk up to the north and get jobs and pay and all that stuff. They were free. Thousands of them went right back to the fields and carried right on living as if they had just the way they were when they were still slaves by law. They were freed up. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how many of us have been set free, but we're still living under that power of sin? Christ has set you free. He has made you alive. He has raised you up with Christ. And He has seated you with Christ. The power of God at work towards you that set you free is still working towards you so that you'll finish this race and finish this life. It just so convicted me. What's my life like? What about you? Are you still living in slavery to sin? Because that's not what God designed for you. We're still living in selfishness and pride because God set you free from it. Don't go back to it. What about you sitting here this morning and you don't know what it is to believe in Jesus? You don't know what it is to truly be made alive. Everything Paul described about us as Christians in our past is true of you in the present. You are in slavery to sin. You are living in conformity to the devil. You are living in conformity to the wicked ways of this world. And you are children of wrath, meaning that you, if you are left to the natural course of events, if you do not turn towards Christ and cry out for forgiveness, you will know what it is to fall under the full weight of the wrath of Almighty God. And so I, I must, I can't help but beg you this morning, if that's where you're standing, if that's what your situation is, I cry out to you, turn away. Turn towards God. You hear a little voice inside you. Not actually hear it with your ears. Just You sense the voice of God calling you to come to me. 
And my urge to you this morning is listen to the voice of the Spirit of God that is drawing you and calling you to come and walk with Jesus. Be set free. Know what it means to be truly alive. We're going to sing one last hymn this morning as we close.